praise the Lord, how good it is to sing praises to our God, for the Lord is gracious and a song of praise is fitting. God determines the number of the stars. God gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. God's understanding is beyond measure. Holy God, you are both compassionate and righteous, patient and passionate, gracious and committed to justice. Your movement of love places you firmly in these paradoxical worlds and demands that we too move with discerning hearts. So come and dwell with us now. Teach us when your love calls us for gentleness and for challenge. Show us when to push and show us when to remain still. May we find you this day within our own sacred humanity. We pray in the name of Jesus, our human and divine Savior. Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia both to those of us gathered here in this sanctuary, as well as to everyone worshiping in other locations. However we get here, we are glad and grateful to gather in the name of the Lord. And because it is in Christ's name that we have gathered, that means that our word of welcome is, by definition, one that is extended with no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. All are welcome in Christ's house, so all are welcome here. We do ask everyone, members and guests alike, kindly to sign the friendship pad. You'll find that on your pew if you will sign your name and send it down and back again. We will have the advantage of one another's names as we greet one another following worship today. And likewise, for those of you worshiping at home, we hope that you will sign our virtual friendship pad, which you'll find on your sign-in page where you click to join the service. I'd like to invite everyone as well to a time of fellowship in Old Buttonwood Hall after the conclusion of this service. Old Buttonwood Hall is just out this door to my right down a very short hallway, and there you will find our deacons have prepared some light refreshments, but most importantly, the opportunity to be together in fellowship. I'd like to highlight a few things from the announcements portion of your bulletin for your particular attention, including one that's not in the announcements portion of the bulletin. The first is to note that our annual meeting of the congregation is next Sunday. That is at 10 a.m., and the business of that meeting will be threefold, to hear the report of the session, which includes the budget, for receive the annual report from last year, to act on the recommendations of our officer nominating committee for nominations to the board of the board of deacons and to the session, and finally to vote on changes to the pastor's terms of call. That, of course, being my salary. I would like to highlight as well that while it has in years gone by been a practice to have a fellowship meal associated with that, we're actually going to do the fellowship meal in just a few weeks on March the third, following this worship service. That will enable us to welcome more hospitably a group of students from Howard University that will be spending their alternative spring break with us here in Philadelphia. So we wish to host them. So we're going to have that fellowship lunch on March 3rd following this service. Let me highlight as well, there's an upcoming activity for the TNT group. You can RSVP to Laura about that. 
Our Ash Wednesday services are noted as well in the bulletin. Parking is available with placards for that. Diane Rogers has asked me to let you know that if you would like to go on the Women of Wit and Wisdom excursion out to Bryn Mawr to see Joao's work, she just needs to hear from you, preferably by Tuesday. That gathering for that is on the 21st of February. And then finally, I'd like to call your attention to this little uh, logo down at the bottom of your hymn sheet, and that is for our Conversations Worth Having seminar, which will be this year on Saturday, February the 17th. As I have been noting, it is an ambitious topic. How do we as Christians both take seriously the ways we read the Bible, but also recognize how those ways of reading the Bible can lead us into idolatry, particularly in an era when the church struggles with Christian nationalism? Brian Blunt, our presenter for the day, is one of the world's leading scholars, and I do hope you will make a point of being with us from 10 to 3 that day. Child care is available by reservation. We do offer it. And there will be a light lunch provided. And Dr. Blunt will be preaching the following Sunday uh, here at both 11 and at 9 o'clock in the morning. So you do need to register for that. There's a QR code on the logo that you can use to register. Or you may register through the church website. And failing all of those things, you can certainly call the church office and Sue will make sure you are connected with that. Uh, I believe that covers everything. So with all these things noted, let us continue our worship now with our confession of sin. The relentless demands of our everyday lives can leave us feeling exhausted, squeezed out. But we come to worship this morning remembering that in the midst of our weariness, Jesus is calling us to come. Come all who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. We come to worship remembering that we are not called to depend upon our individual strength, but rather upon the God of all creation and upon our communities of care and support. So friends, come. All of you who are tired and weary, come and find rest in God's acceptance and mercy by praying together first in unison and then in silence. Let us pray. Holy God, you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ. Everything we need to know about you has been shown. Your goodness, mercy, healing, and renewal are on full display. But sometimes we do not see what is right before us. Sometimes we miss your perfection and concentrate instead on our own imperfection. We misunderstand you, and so we misunderstand the world. Forgive us, we pray. Restore to us the ability to see what is plainly in front of us. Renew within us the capacity for goodness, mercy, healing, and renewal. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. the world can be a cold and difficult place, 
Jesus tells us to take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and in me you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, in Jesus this day we find forgiveness and acceptance. And we can rest easy in the knowledge that we are loved and we are lifted up so that we can go out and love others. Friends, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our first scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 through 23. Listen for God's word for you. If I proclaim the gospel, this gives me no ground for boasting, for an obligation is laid on me, and woe to me if I do not proclaim the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have reward. But if not of my own will, I am entrusted with a commission. What then is my reward? Just this, that in my proclamation I may make the gospel free of charge, so as not to make, make full use of my rights in the gospel. For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I, might, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessings. Our gospel lesson for this morning comes from the very beginning of the book of Mark, where we explore one of his first healing miracles. Listen for God's word for you. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in the synagogues and casting out demons. May God add a blessing to these readings. Psalter lesson is taken from the 40th chapter of Isaiah, the 21st chapter, through, excuse me, the 21st verse through the 31st. Continue to listen to the word of God to us this day. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. 
who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to live in, who brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows upon them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom, then, will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host and numbers them, calling them all by name, because he is great in strength, mighty in power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. One of my seminary theology professors was very fond of telling first-year students that while all theology is in some way contextual, it is the job of the theologian to minimize the effects of context on theology. What he meant was that we all have things we bring to bear when we think about who God is and what God is like. And further, that we who are finite transient creatures cannot ultimately fathom the depths of God who is infinite and wholly other. And perhaps he was right, at least regarding systematic theology. 
But it is also true that we cannot outrun all of our perceptions of God, no matter how diligent and objective we might try to be with the facts at hand. Part of our conversations worth having topic deals with understanding how our cultures shape the ways we read the Bible, which, of course, is the basis of Christian theology. The real truth is that we are all theologians with all of our context from the very first moment that we begin to conceive of a notion of God. I am fond of a story that was recounted to me by a woman who was the mother of a small child. Upon returning home after church one day, her daughter declared that God had been in her Sunday school class that morning. Her mother, not wanting to crush her daughter's nascent faith, asked her a few follow-up questions for the particulars. What does God look like? she asked. You know what he looks like, her mother, her daughter replied, exasperated. You listen to him every week in church. Now, before the mother had even a, a moment to glory in the wonderful mysteries of God unfolding in her daughter's profound statement of faith, her daughter went on. Sometimes, she said, we only get Jesus, the red-headed one, but today God visited. It quickly became crystal clear that God was the pastor and Jesus was the red-headed associate pastor. No pressure whatsoever. But, since we're telling stories, my favorite description of me that had ever been offered by a child of a church I was serving was simply the Godfather. I'm not quite sure how I earned it, but I'll take it. We all become theologians at a very early age. The minute we face a question, existential or not, that we cannot answer, we become theologians, either drawing conclusions about God or perhaps conclusions of our perceptions of God's absence. Likewise, we all become biblical interpreters at an early age. We hear the story, for example, of Adam and Eve or Noah or Moses, and we have to decide how to hear it. We have to decide what we believe about it. Generally, if we are very young, educational theorists tell us we will interpret the story literally, because that is the way that our brains process information at an early age. A thing is either true or untrue, reliable or unreliable. We are generally all biblical literalists at a young age. The French philosopher Paul Ricoeur put into words what we all go through. He said, we experience a pre-critical and a post-critical naivete that stand on either side of a critical desert. Now think about that for a minute. We hear things about God from reliable sources, 
and we believe them to be true. Here's an example. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. We perhaps learn the song. We believe it. We aren't critical of it. You could even say we are naive. And then somewhere in the course of maturing, as we learn more about civilization, we might learn that the archaeological evidence is pretty clear that Jericho was never a walled city. We heard a story as true. We believed it, eh, but it's not really completely historically accurate, which might cause us to lose the childlike trust of faith and plunge us into a critical desert of development. Then Ricoeur, theolo theolo excuse me, then Ricoeur concludes, in the fullness of our growth, and perhaps in God's grace, we come to realize something profound. It doesn't have to be historical to be true. The presence of God with the people of God against all odds is still a true story. Whether Jericho had any walls or not, we know the story is not factual, but we also know that it's true. We enter into an intentional post-critical naivete. Some call it a second naivete. The life of faith is full of critical deserts. Sometimes it is an event that plunges us into such a desert, a happening, a life transition that forces us into critical reflection about God and ourselves. Truly, John Calvin was right when he said that there is no knowledge of self that is not prefaced by the knowledge of God. And yet, theologians still try to give descriptions of God that will transcend the inevitable contextualization of God that we all experience. Classically, they are defined as the perfections of God. Here is a short synopsis. God is not limited in power, therefore God is omnipotent. God is not limited in knowledge, therefore God is omniscient. God is not limited by spatiality, therefore God is immense, filling all spaces and omnipresent, being present to every point in the universe that God has created with the fullness, with the entirety of God's being. The problem we all face, however, is that the very finiteness with which we approach these perfections may very well lead us to a failure of understanding. Which is not to say that we have no knowledge of God, but it is to say 
that any knowledge of God that we do have would be incomplete, contextual, and unique to each of us. Which is all to say that each of us has conceptions about God. And why should we be be concerned with all of this? Because our conception of God invariably shapes our conception of the whole world. Calvin truly was right when he said there is no knowledge of self that is not prefaced by the knowledge of God. And if we have an impoverished understanding of God, we will have an impoverished understanding of creation, of both our own humanity and the humanity of others. Why are we concerned about this? Here's one answer. A poll published by the Wall Street Journal last year revealed that four years before, 80% of Americans rated tolerance for others as very important. In 2023, that figure had dropped to 58%. Similarly, in the last two months of 2023, anti-Semitic incidents in the United States reached their highest point in a two-month period since the Anti-Defamation League began tracking. Further, the FBI's crime report for 2022 showed that hate crimes based on sexual orientation increased 13.8% over the prior year, and hate crimes based on gender identity jumped a staggering 38.9%. I could go on and on. The same is true of Islamophobia and AAPI hate. First Church is deeply committed to inclusion. I know the old line about lies and statistics, but if we get God wrong, it is hard to see the world right. And perhaps these statistics show us where the church's work is still needed. Because if one has an impoverished understanding of God, then one's understanding of everything else will be impoverished. How does one come to an impoverished understanding of God? There are many ways, but chief among them, I think, is this. We do not learn the lessons that the desert would teach us. The world is full of folks who have experienced hard knocks. There's nothing unusual about experiencing something difficult. It happens to everyone. The Bible 
has a way of understanding hard knocks. It is one that we will immerse ourselves in fairly deeply over the coming weeks of Lent. It is the analogy of the desert. Experiences that shape us have the potential to be experiences in which we find ourselves open to God's help, God's love, God's power to redeem and heal. But absent a right knowledge of God, those very same experiences can close us to the perception of God's help, God's love, and God's power to redeem and heal. Frequently, the difference is whether or not we learned the lessons the desert would teach us. The community of Isaiah was no stranger to desert experiences. Theirs was an existence that was cut off from the experiences that had grounded them and provided them with a sense of security, that very sense of security that all of us crave. What's more, it was a generational loss of security. In different eras over a stretch of time, various prophets spoke under the name of Isaiah, first as calamity threatened, then as the community collapsed, and then finally in hope as God restored the community. Their words are some of the great words of hope of our faith, including that 40th chapter where the prophet reiterates that the creative force and power of God is undeniable, is unalienable, inalienable. From the very foundations of the earth, the prophet reminds us, God is creator and sustainer. And then the prophet pivots to a resounding proclamation that those who wait, they will be sustained by God. Their strength shall be renewed, and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. And the understanding of God that is operative all through Isaiah's theology is that of a God who always comes through. So that those who wait for the Lord will find that God waits with them, still meeting weariness and fainting with renewal and strength. Now, in Christian faith, that same strength of God is shown not in destructive power and might, but by the incarnation of love, which is why Christians know God through Jesus Christ and his teachings. A while back, I heard an interview with the poet and essayist Mary Carr by Krista Tippett. I was captivated by something she said about the carnal physicality of Catholic faith. She said, I remember, and these are her words, not mine, I remember looking at the body on the cross and saying to my son that, I don't even remember if I ever wrote about this before or not, but I remember looking at it before we were baptized and saying, I don't get this whole crucifixion thing. It's so 
awful. I mean, the suffering, beaten critter nailed up there is just so gross. Why don't they just have you say the jump rope rhymes and then you're redeemed? My kid was young, like maybe, I don't know, eight or nine, said, who would pay attention to that? He said, this is like Pulp Fiction. My mother, the one time I left him with her, had let him watch Pulp Fiction when he was like seven years old. And he said, this is like Pulp Fiction. It's just like everyone is going to gawk at this. And then I suddenly thought, what else would we pay attention to as human beings but this grisly, awful, morbid thing? You're not going to look at that and say, oh, you don't know about suffering. You're God. What do you know about suffering? You're going to look and say, oh, you were a hunk of meat like me. That idea of descending theology of the spirit being in these hunks of flesh. It's, wow, she concludes. It's a big deal. The Christian conception of God is the incarnation. And the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ the story of God who enters the desert places, the God who calls us to empathize with all people, seeing ourselves in them and them in ourselves, the God who calls us to bring healing even if, like in the gospel, the whole city comes to our doors. So let us return to our conception of God and the world. Perhaps you'll relate to this. The older I get, the shorter I find the list of beliefs that are core for me. But I believe those things more and more deeply. That God is love. That in the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's love wins even over death. And that this good news of God in Jesus Christ is really only good news if it is good news for everyone. Which is why it matters how we see God. Because it shapes how we will see the whole world. The God we know in the gospel is a God of welcome. The God we know in the gospel is a God of solidarity. And the God we encounter in the, go in the gospel is one 
who knows the way of the desert, in which we journey with each other in the knowledge that we are journeying with God. That, that is how God has always journeyed alongside us. And now, as always, how we see God is how we will see the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
striving now, friends, to get God right, we will join our voices together with people across time and across space by declaring together what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. The very good news of this day is that the weight of the world does not rest on our shoulders alone. That the God of all creation is always extending, reaching, moving towards us and toward every part of the world that aches. In gratitude for the balms offered to us, we dare to offer our gifts to one another in hopes that through our gifts we might be healed. Our tithes and offerings will now be received.
loving and holy God, you have not left us powerless before the pains and oppressions in this world. With your help, we are not afraid to confront and be confronted by the truth of what has been and what may become. Bless these offerings that they may be devoted to faithful practices of community and care wherever they are needed most. With your strength, lift us up once again. We pray in the name of your Son who heals us and sets us free. Amen. Let us join again together in prayer. Let us pray. Loving God, in the face of the challenges and possibilities of our world, we have become wary. As we bend under the weight of relentless demands, we have given into despair. As we scrape and claw and try to will our way out of our own pain, you, O oh God, offer us another way to be. You tell us we can stop. We can rest. The weight that we carry, the journey that we are on, we cannot, we do not need to finish it alone. You invite us to put down all that we carry and to remember that it is you, not us, who lifts us up on eagle's wings, who gives us strength and courage, vision, hope, and joy. You, Lord God, will rise up, and we will rise up on your wings. We offer to you this day the people and places and situations that we cannot carry on our own, the looming things in our lives. We pray for the bodies and hearts, minds, and relationships that are in need of healing. We pray for the divisions that threaten to tear us apart. We pray for the lands that are hurting, that are stripped and poisoned and exploited. We pray for the human life that is devalued and destroyed. Your love, O oh God, is attentive, not avoidant, patient, not passive, always moving, reaching for liberation. May your love be known in the world through us, through our tender care for one another, through our humble work together. Offer us your strength and balm this day. Lift us up and empower us to lift up others with us. Move within our hurting and wounded world, even as we pray the prayer that your child taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
this binary of fact or fiction was not one with which the ancient Israelites were overly afflicted. They could see that they could sit and hold two things at the same time. And we should too. That's what it is to enter into that second naivete, to allow that childlike understanding of God shape who we are and how we see the world. Because truly, there is no knowledge of self that is not prefaced by the knowledge of God. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.